Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. Good to have you with us. The topic today is Tom Snow. Tom Snow, now that's a name you may or may not have heard of. Chances are you have heard his music. Tom Snow is a songwriter. Everyone from Barbara Streisand, The Tubes, Selena, Christina Aguilera, Linda Ronstadt, Aaron Neville, Ray Charles, I could keep on going. They've all recorded the songs of Tom Snow. He recorded three solo albums of his own, but perhaps Tom Snow is best known for such titles as Let's Hear It For The Boy, sung by Denise Williams for the film soundtrack to Footloose, or Linda Ronstadt's Don't Know Much, which she sung as a duet with Aaron Neville, or Barry Manilow's recording of Somewhere Down the Road, just to name a few of the well-known songs Tom Snow has composed. He's won or been nominated for such awards as an Oscar, Emmy, and a Tony. He has won 15 BMI Millionaires Awards for songs reaching a million or more plays on the radio, Tom Snow is a great pleasure to interview, as you're going to hear. He's very affable, great to talk to, and one day I hope to meet him in person. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of our listening audience, it is our great pleasure to welcome our special guest, Tom Snow. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be be with you. For everyone out there that's listening, my first question, who is Tom Snow? Oh, Tom Snow is a songwriter, happily retired at this point, who worked in Hollywood from oh the summer of 1969 and right up through 2005 and wrote songs for a number of people from uh, Winter Sisters all the way to the Tubes, everybody in between, Dolly Parton, you name it, I, I wrote them. <laughs> well, take us back a little bit. What was life like growing up? Oh, for me, it was moving from one house to another. My parents had a home in Princeton, New Jersey, and one in Sarasota, Florida, where they went for the winters, and another one in Martha's Vineyard, where they, they spent summers. So I kind of kind of followed them around, nice places. And then uh, when I was, let's see, 12, 12 and a half, 13, I was in the back of a car going to look at boarding schools in uh, New England. So I spent three years at a school in um, Connecticut called Pomfret, and then I finished up at another boarding school in Coconut Grove, Florida, a place called Ransom, and that was it. It was just sort of sort of that kind of migratory upbringing, if you will, if there's such a term. Did you always have a strong love for music? Yes, pretty as far back as I can remember. Um, there was a lot of music in the house. My parents were involved in theater, so often I'd hear musical, you know, songs from great, the great songs from the great musicals, South Pacific and My Fair Lady and so forth. My father also played piano by ear and sang. He was a, he was an actor. So there was a lot of that going on. And uh, my mom took me at a very early age, started going to symphonies and gave me an ear for classical music. I think by the time I was eight, I think, which is, I think third grade, I asked her, I told her I wanted to play trumpet because I, and she said, well, you're not going to practice trumpet in the house, but there's a piano over there that you're certainly welcome to go practice and we'll get you lessons. And that's pretty much when it started. And I went from there. 
can you remember the first song you ever wrote? Oh, well, I can tell yeah. The first song I ever wrote was in my freshman year at the Berkeley College of Music, where I had gone with the dream of becoming a jazz pianist, and I really hadn't thought much about being a songwriter. But it was it was 1965 in Boston, and there was a you know the whole sort of folk rock revolution was was happening, and I don't know revolution is the right word, but anyways, that kind of music, and I was surrounded by that on weekends, and so the first song I wrote was a song for my sister's baby girl, Daphne, who had just been born, and I wrote a tune about that. I did try to convince my mother when I was eight eight or so. I used to, I used to listen, watch faithfully the uh, Disney, the wonderful world of Disney on television, and they always started the show off with When You Wish Upon a Star, and I actually went over to the piano and picked that one out by ear, and then I, I guess I'm, I was too young to know any better. I thought, wow. I think I just wrote this. So <laughs> so I wish I could say that was the first song I wrote, but in fact. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, when you're writing a song, how does the composition start for you? What inspires it? Well, a good title always always inspires. And so you're always, and I'm sure that any any professional songwriter will tell you that, you're always looking for a good title because it gives you a point of view and a, and a good place to start from. So that's that's one way. and then. Those don't always come along. So just going in the room and, and closing the door and sitting down at the piano and just banging away for for um, however long it takes until something some good idea arrives is another form and probably the more the more typical form of inspiration. <laughs> I know even I, there's a quote even George Gershwin said it took him every day two hours to write through the dreck. So I think probably that's the way I got my inspiration more than anything else was just sitting down at the piano and and going and waiting for, waiting for inspiration. You, you know, you you had to look to find, you had to work to find inspiration. Um, so the inspiration is always more of an after product, I think, of just showing up every day and and going to work. Every now and then, very rarely, a whole a tune fully formed will pop out, and that's only because you're one is writing so much all the time and. It's, I always had two or three songs underway, and it's very intense when when you're um, in the business. For me, anyways, it was pretty much 24/7 all the time, just constantly obsessed with with the songs that you're working on. Just all around as a musician, both as a composer and as as a pianist, who would you say your biggest influences are? Well, there's so many. I mean, the reason I got into music to begin with was Bill Evans. You know, when everybody was sort of really getting into the folk music and the Beatles and Bob Dylan and all that stuff, I was completely immersed in sort of 60s jazz. And Bill Evans, of course, was a great genius and a great figure there. So his piano playing, I'd like to say it influenced me, but I could never play that well. I mean, I, I, I tried, but I just didn't have that ability. So, But it was it was huge, and, and there was... Um, on the other side of the coin, a different style of piano playing, there's a guy named Bobby Timmons who played with Cannonball Adderley. Very funky, bluesy stuff. So so those two things, my, I think my influences are very eclectic, and I think that my discography is, is a reflection of that because I wrote in all kinds of styles, and essentially music was music. My, I didn't ever try to label whatever I was, whatever I was doing. So, and then... 
you know, just the great songwriters, certainly of, of the golden age of songwriting, the American Songbook, and the Rogers and Hart and Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and Frank Lesser, huge, big deal for me, Frank Lesser. He wrote Guys and Dolls. and So there's a lot of that coming in as well. That, that of course, comes from my, my upbringing and my parents being involved in theater. So I heard all those great songs. So I had a great appreciation for that. I, I didn't really listen too much to country music when I was growing up, but I later did and learned to just love the great, the great country writers and the great the lyrics, especially in particular, that, that come out of uh, country music I, were, um, had a big impact on me, just in terms of like, you just can't write any old lyric. You've got to tell a really good story. So I guess it's, it's, it's a number of things that, that influenced me, not, not any one more than the other, however. In addition to the songs that you've written for other people, you also had your own recording career. So I wanted you to take us back to the first record you made. What was that experience like? Uh, it was chaotic. <laughs> I was in a, actually, it wasn't a solo effort. It was in a band that I started with another fella when I arrived in Los Angeles in the, in, in the summer of, right after I graduated from Berkeley College of Music, I got on an airplane, left the East Coast, headed for the West Coast, and struck up a songwriting relationship with a fellow employee at a record store in the summer of 69. And we ultimately created a band called Country, oddly enough, C-O-U-N-T-R-Y, because of the sort of the country rock thing that was going on in the um, early 70s. And, and we got signed to Atlantic Records and to actually a subsidiary label of Atlantic called Clean Records, as in everybody needs a clean record. And we made an album, and, and we had Ahmed Erdogan come out to produce a cut, and it was all very heady stuff, but it was also quite chaotic because we were all very young. And So I, I made that record, and then the band broke up, and then I went on to a solo career. I made my first solo album for Capitol Records a couple of years later. I think it was in 75. And that was a much more sort of considered effort, and it was just me essentially writing everything myself. It was fun. It was that that was um, fun doing those two records. They didn't go anywhere, and I my artist career really never took off. But it was informative, and, and I made some noise in Hollywood, so it helped out later with my songwriting career. I wanted to ask you about the first song you wrote that was recorded by another artist. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it Rita Coolidge? That's close. There's actually I actually wrote a song in music school at Berkeley. And it was recorded by a group called the Bagatelle, who were three sort of curbside. It started off as sort of this, they grew up in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and environment of Boston. And I had joined the band when they were called the Mandrells. And then I, I, I left the band after a year. This was all while I was going to Berkeley. And then they got signed to ABC Records and made an album. And I, and I wrote a couple of songs for them. On that was the fir- those were the first two songs I'd ever had recorded, and, and one of them was called Such a Fuss About Sunday, and the other one was called something original like Hey You or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, that was while I was a student, so, and I'd had some songs recorded before Rita did You, but You was, was the song that really kind of opened the door for me to meeting other great writers like Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, because... Rita's recording won a BMI Pop Award, and so I got invited to the the annual dinner, and and 
it sort of was my introduction into the, uh, if you will, for uh, the the upper echelons of songwriting, you know, in Los Angeles in 1970, whatever it was, seven or something. So it was a first in that sense. <laughs> you just mentioned a second ago, Cynthia Weil, such a yeah. great, great lyricist. Yes. Tell me about meeting her. How did you meet her? I met her at um, that particular BMI Pop Awards dinner, which I, well, I guess that must have been in 77 or maybe later, 78 or 79, something like that. Yeah, would have been around there. And and she was aware of, of who I was, but it's great because we, you know, they, they both Barry and Cynthia are dear, dear friends and longtime friends and, and lovely people. You know, she she was cagey. She was smart. So she was. They were writers over at ATV Music at the time of the Rita cut. And while they they were suitably impressed with with that song, she didn't write with me right away. So I got to write with another writer over at ATV. <laughs> she kind of saw what I wrote there, and then finally she just she you know she consented to write with me. We had a lot of success together. So, but that's where I met her at the at the BMI dinner. It was kind of you know nothing. Nothing terribly sexy about that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you've written songs for everyone from the Pointer Sisters to the Tubes, yeah. and that's incredibly diverse. Yeah, it is. And it's not because I was trying to. It's just sort of the the way it happened. When I would sit down and write a song, I when I was in the sort of in the real middle of my career, Every day, you know, like every, any other songwriter, you know, you get up, you go into your room and, and go to work. I was aware of who was looking and who was recording at the time, but I wasn't doing any particular target writing. So I just kind of went where the muse would take me. And sometimes that would be, it would end up being an R&B or, or, or even a, even a country hit like Don't Call It Love that Dolly Parton and geez, a number of country artists cut. But I was never writing in any one particular vein. It was just, I guess for lack of a better term, it was always, it was, everything I wrote was always in a pop, had a pop sensibility to it. But I was able to, and I think I give a lot of credit to my Berkeley education that I was able to sort of hang with, I could write for Barbara Streisand or I could, or I could go over and hang with Little Feet and, and write with them. I don't know. It's just, I'm a chameleon, I guess. <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask you about that Pointer Sisters song, He's So Shy. Right. Tell us about that song. That was my first really, really big hit, and it was born of three weeks of frustration of not having anything come out of my music room. I just And I was feeling like a, a musical dope, just going through a dry period. One evening after dinner, I went back into the studio and put on a metronome. I actually had a little Roland beatbox, Roland 880. I'd had a glass of wine or two, feeling pretty loose, so I wasn't too, I wasn't too uh, trying too hard. And then I just started playing arpeggios on the piano in time to this little rhythm that I'd set up on a beatbox, because that's all I could think of to do. <laughs> so I thought, well, I might as well make some music here. It's sort of like the writer staring at the blank page and and writing only all work and no play makes Johnny, you know. But as soon as uh, I don't know what happened, the, I got this little groove going and these. G minor arpeggios going, and then pretty soon, pretty soon, a little melody just decided to come and visit, and I started singing as Quincy Jones calls them, quaalude lyrics, blah 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 blah, blah. <laughs> just to get, just add something, carry the tune that was coming out of my head, and then um, when I hit the chorus, when I found a, a chorus vibe, I actually was thinking about 
Leo Sayre's wife, Jan, and I, I had been working with Leo and, and was feeling very uh, grateful to him for giving me you know, my shot. So I thought, well, this sounds like it might be a great idea for Leo. And, and the, you know, I thought of her, and, I'm, and she's so shy, because she was terribly, terribly shy, popped into my head. So it started life as she's so shy, ended up as he's so shy with Cynthia finishing the lyric and uh, Richard Perry cutting it on the Pointer Sisters. I'm sad to say Leo passed on the song when he heard it. (laughs) Hmm. But that that, that just shows you, you know, that all you can do is write them. (laughs) Tell us, what was the song that you wrote that the Tubes recorded? What was it called? Fee Waybill came over to the house to write because I was having success and I was on the charts and I forget who I might have even been David Foster who sent him over and we sat down and there's like this this crazy high super high energy San Francisco no he wasn't crazy he was very nice but super high energy San Francisco rock art very super creative guy and I knew it had something had to have a sort of a rock feel so I just put on as best I could my rock hat and we wrote a tune called Piece by Piece Piece by piece, I think it's called, and made it a decent enough demo, and it got on their record, the the record that David was producing with him. One of the songs that you co-wrote with Cynthia Well is Somewhere Down the Road that Barry Manilow recorded. Yeah. Just a fantastic song, beautiful song. Oh. How did that song come about? That song was came melody first, and that was one of those fully formed melodies that just I don't know. It it was like a real, it was a real gift to that one. I was, you know, the muses were being real kind to me. So I just remember the melody one afternoon, just all of a sudden coming out of me. It was actually, I sort of had to just let it happen and hold on for the ride. It was, it was pretty, it was a pretty intense experience. And I think, again, I, I was just sort of singing nonsense syllables for lyrics, but I think on the chorus, I wrote, I, ha, I sort of mumbled something like somewhere down the line, you know, or, and Cynthia always liked to get, always liked to get melodies for me with whatever sort of subliminal subconscious words left in. Some I've written with other people that just said, no, I don't, I just want to hear la 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 la, you know, once you get the melody, I don't want to hear anything that that might say. Cynthia liked the, the sort of subconscious suggestion. So I get, I had the melody and I sent it over to her and, she called me up and she said, oh, wow, I hope you don't mind if I take a little time with this because I'm a little intimidated by the, by the beauty of the melody. I said, you take all the time you need. So but I think it was about two or three weeks. Normally, Cynthia gets something done in, in a, you know, within a week. But two or three weeks later, she sent me over the lyric. And her first, first thing she said to me, she said, now, don't get nervous. I know the title looks like prosaic, but... Just sing it a couple times and see how you feel. And obviously, I loved it right away. So, so but that was a classic case of music first, and then a great lyricist coming up with a great lyric. What did you think of Barry Manilow's recording? I like it. Barry does it in concert now, and and he's such a sweet man. He always mentions Cynthia and me when he performs it, but he does it just solo at a piano, which which is great because he Barry's a, a very sensitive and very talented musician himself in his own right, you know, from his years of orchestrating and arranging for Bette Midler and so forth. So he understood the fragile beauty of the song and, and likes to perform it that way. Now, I mean, I know that when he was recording at Arista, Clive Davis 
gave him a sound and that sort of big, I hate to use the word, and, and I don't mean it in any disrespectful way, but bombastic. <laughs> yeah. And so it got, a little, it got a little over the top there when we first heard it. We, it was a bit of a shock. We were thrilled that he recorded it. The best thing I can say is that I was thrilled that he recorded it, and I really like it when he, I love it when he performs it live. Can I, can I give you that kind of a yeah, definitely. politician answer? <laughs> <laughs> this is a very tough question for a lot of composers. Could you pick a favorite song that you've written? That I've written? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just keep going back to He's So Shy. There's so many, I've, obviously, so many of my colleagues and people you've interviewed, we've all written many, many songs, and each time they're coming out, they're kind of, they're a part of us or whatever you want, however you want to say that, and they're, so they're sort of like children. And I have a few songs that I, I don't think ever got recorded that are, you know, compositionally, that impress me the most, I'll put it that way. But overall, I think it's, I just love, he's so shy, you know, there's something about about the tune and about the way it came about and how it really kicked off my my sort of hit writing career and the whole way it brought boy Cynthia and I, I did that together. So I have a special affection for that one. I also wanted to ask about the Footloose movie. Mm-hmm. That's the new one or the old one? The well, the the one that the old one. Okay, eighty yeah, back in eighty two. Eighty four, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, eighty four. I beg your pardon. Eighty four. How did that come to be? The man behind all of that is Dean Pitchford. He wrote the screenplay, and he wrote all the lyrics to the song. So I had been working with Dean at that point for a couple of years, and we'd all, we, I think by that time we'd already written Don't Call It Love, and we'd written You Should Hear How She Talks About You from Melissa Manchester. And we, were, we were very good friends and, and, and strong collaborators, and he uh, brought me in on the project. The film studio, when, you, when you're working in film, the film studio calls all the shots. So you know, you're definitely, it's a, you're a worker bee. So you have very little control over what happens. Dean asked me to actually, before they started shooting, read the script, and there was a cue for a song that he put in the script. He and I wrote that song before filming, and it, that was the song called Somebody's Eyes. I came in pre-production, and then, and then Let's Hear It for the Boy came about in post-production. That was really a result of my friendship and successful collaboration with Dean at the time. Well, that same year, I believe it was, in, in 1984, was when Peebo Bryson came out with If Ever You're In My Arms. Yes, right. If Ever You're In My Arms Again. Yeah. Yeah. And that song That's has amazing. just endured. I mean, it's... Yeah. You still hear it I, all I know. the time. It's, it's amazing. Well, I mean, that, now there's a, there's a fabulous vocal. Boy, when I heard that, I, you know, I just went, wow. I heard Peebo Bryson perform that in concert. It's a, it's a wonderful song. So tell us about how that was inspired. I co-wrote the music with Michael Masser. We came up with this this melody, and and you know Michael was not just a songwriter; he was also songwriter producer, and was having all kinds of hits. Anyways, we we came up with this ballad together, and then we we cobbled out a lyric, which I can't even remember what the title was, but you know we sang. We knew the music was great, and we thought the the lyric was okay, but. I think he called me a couple of days after we had finished this tune, and he said, "You know, it's really not a great lyric." And I said, "Yeah, you're right." And he said, "We've got well, we've got a, a potential hit song here with this with this music. Let's pull in a a great lyricist." And I said, "I'm I'm down with that." So guess who came on board? Cynthia. 
You know, it, it's interesting because Cynthia was one of the few lyricists I worked with who wrote preferred writing to music, which, you know, in every book on songwriting I've ever read, that's general, I mean, especially from the, the golden era, it was always music first. It was always, uh, you know, when Johnny Mercer coming in second and writing a, a lyric to Jimmy Van Heusen melody or something. So, which I liked because it gives the composer freedom. You're not constrained by a lyric in front of you, which often is da 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 You know what I'm saying? Because with all respect to lyricists, they're not composers necessarily. So I always I always felt fortunate and and admired Cynthia's ability, inclination to write that way, music first, lyric second. So that was a case of music first, then lyric, and then lyric rewritten, thankfully. <laughs> On the subject of lyricists, and you don't have to answer this question, has yeah. there been a favorite lyricist that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I'll go back and I'll go back and say Cynthia. I just I just adore everything we we wrote. I just love her. What can I say? Uh, they're all great, but I guess I guess I guess I do have a special place in my heart for Cynthia. Another great lyricist that you worked with was the the great Jack Feldman. Mm. Tell us about oh, working with him. Oh, well, Jack Jack and I, we worked in the world of Disney together, and I, I believe it was Disney who put us together. In fact, I'm sure it was. We, the television animation department at, at, at Disney brought us together on the TV pilot for A Little Mermaid. Uh, this, the movie had already been out and was a huge success, so Disney you wanted to do a TV series. So we worked over at TV Animation. We weren't working at the, over at the big lot. And so Jack and I were brought in to write the theme for the pilot, the pilot show. And we just hit it off and had a great time and, and worked on a Goofy movie together. And then on a Lion, the, uh, the follow-up, uh, Lion King 2. And Jack is a wonderful, wonderful theatrical lyricist and just is, you know, I got to put him up there with Cynthia too, thinking about my favorite people and favorite lyricists. <laughs> He's so good and just so much fun, and it was just an absolute delight, no matter, notwithstanding the, the kind of dire pressure that one is under when you, when you write and work for Disney. I mean, it's, you're set back, and you gotta, if you want to get three songs in a movie, it's not unusual to, to write ten of them or have that, that many rewrites. But it was always, always fun with Jack, always great. I also wanted to ask you about the song. It's another one of those songs that has just endured on the radio, don't know much. Yeah. Well, there we go again. That's another case of two composers sitting down and coming up with a melody, and that would be Cynthia's husband, Barry. Barry Mann came over to my house one day, and I I wasn't real. I didn't do it a lot, and I'm sure he didn't either. It's a little. It it, it can be it can be perilous. It wasn't with Barry, of course, because he's a very generous and guy. But you get in a room with another composer, and it's sort of like. Who 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 makes the first move? <laughs> you know, it, it could be a good thing or it could be a duel. <laughs> and and I'd had a few of those that that didn't pan out. But with Barry, we we just kind of kicked some ideas around, and and um, I played a little riff on the piano, da da da, sort of a little like Copeland-esque Presbyterian church-sounding thing, da 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 da. And he went, oh 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 oh, do that again, you know, and then. And then he he got on fire, and then he said, "Wait a minute!" And then he sat down, and he just popped up with this verse melody, and and we put that one together. Actually, I think maybe in a day, 
Cynthia then wrote the, that sublime lyric. And I've often said to Cynthia that, for my money, the, the strongest part of that song is the lyric. You know, I mean, the melody is, is nice, but it's not the strongest melody I ever wrote. I think Barry would agree that it's not the strongest he ever wrote, but it was very serviceable. It has, uh, of course, a very warm feeling musically, and but the lyric is so is so great. And that, that went on to be nominated for uh, Song of the Year, actually, for a Grammy. Great, great song. Yeah, thanks. When somebody listens to a song that you've written, what do you hope that the people get out of the experience of listening? I hope it'll move them. I hope it'll move them one way or another. It will touch them. I think that's that's what I'm after. I'm not after sending any big message. As I think it was Samuel Goldman said, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it if it touches them, moves them, if I in in whatever way, emotionally, or if I see them grooving to it, or I mean, that's. That's when I know I've done my job and 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 communicated a little bit. And people adore music. It's always so so nice when when people tell me how much my stuff has meant to them because not everybody has has the great fortune to be able to sit down and write music. So and it, it's a very mysterious process coming up with something out of thin air like music. And when you get feedback from people like I, I like I'm getting now with my website, which is that how you found me, by the way. Yes, TomSnowMusic.com. Right, right. Yeah. So I, you know, finally, my wife gave this website to me as a present. She she designed it for Christmas last Christmas and put it up there. And so, and I'm getting this wonderful gratification from the occasional email that comes in and and or people all around the world, people in Sweden and France, Spain, Japan, where Montana. <laughs> it's just great. I mean, that's that I think is the uh, the thing that that gives me the most gratification that they're touched or moved in some way. Well, speaking of, of the internet and TomSnowMusic.com, I was doing some reading on there and then I posted on my Facebook that I was going to be doing an interview with you. And I had one of my listeners who wrote in and she said that dreaming of you is one of her favorite songs. Oh uh, yeah. Of all time. And so she yeah. wanted to know about that song. I wrote that with my, another great and dear friend, Franny Goldie. We always wrote, we were successful together as sort of both musical, musical type, you know, composers and lyricists. We just get into a room, I, mean, I guess much like it's done down in Nashville when two people get together and they sort of hammer out some music and hammer out a lyric. And that particular song, we were actually writing for a little group called the Jets which had had a couple of hits, and they were a smooth, ammo, you know, middle-of-the-road R&B group. I think we even had one of the singers come up to the house to do the demo for us from the group and so forth, but we didn't get anywhere with them, so the song just kind of sat on the shelf for a bit. And, but Franny is nothing if not one of the, one of the, one of the world's best song pluggers. <laughs> She's amazing. She's everywhere. And I got a call from her saying that, she, that there was this gal Selena, who was going to record it, and and this was very close to the time when Selena was tragically killed. So the um, and you know, and I was I was excited about it. I didn't know exactly anything too much about Selena at the time, and then you know the song got cut. Selena sang her entire lead, and then then she was murdered. Franny went in and finished up some of the background vocals on the fade in a sort of a Selena-esque kind of voice and. 
And that's how that one came about. It was a terrible thing. It was shocking. The song has, has had a really good life, and I know that there are a lot of people that love it. So. Is there anything on the horizons with Tom Snow? No, I think, I think I'm done. I think I ran out of notes. <laughs> There's plenty of people writing songs, and I subscribe to a, an old a quote from a French composer named Hector Berlioz, who wrote, he was a very famous orchestrator composer in the 19th century, who said, never compose anything unless it's a nuisance not to. So I've been very fortunate in my career, and I don't have to write. And so far, there's nothing that's bugging me and being a nuisance that's making me want to write. I always, always have an idea, but I think in terms of writing as a hobby is not something I want to do. And I think I'm pretty much done with dealing with the music business, per se. So we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I never never say no. Something might make me want to sit down. And my, probably if I were to get back to writing, it would be something more of an instrumental, maybe even a small in, in a small orchestral sense or something, and kind of going all the way back to my Berkeley college roots and, and uh, pulling, up, pulling up the old um, compositional stuff. From from those days, and so, but I don't know. That's no, I have nothing big on the horizon except uh, occasionally something comes through, like the in the uh, let's hear it for the boy is going to be in the remake of Footloose, which is nice to know. So hopefully that'll have another life. Outside of that, it's the only thing on my horizon is golf with my buddies on Wednesdays and Saturday. (laughs) Not bad. Not bad. No kidding. (laughs) I'm not complaining. (laughs) What is the best thing about being Tom Snow? Oh, the best thing I think is, is 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 my life. What can I say? I've been incredibly lucky. Just celebrated my 39th wedding anniversary with Mary Bell, and I have great friends and live in a great place. So, boy, I, I'd say it's the whole ball of wax. Well, I have two final questions for you. Mm-hmm. This first one is kind of lighthearted. What is your all-time favorite meal? All-time favorite meal? Yes, oh. sir. Oh, no, boy. Well, I have, my sister lives in Italy and has most of her life, and she has kids, and they're, they all live in Florence. So I would say a great Florentine steak. It's the best steak I've ever had in my life with, and I don't want to sound too, too gourmetish, but a pasta carbonara, which is pasta made with eggs and, and the Italian, Italian bacon, the name of which now escapes me. So, yeah, sort of like, like that with a great wine. A really, really good wine. That would be it. Second to that would probably be a really good In-N-Out double, double, double cheeseburger, animal style. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's much like your 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 songwriting in that it's diverse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> now for the last question, it's open-ended. For all the people who are listening in, wherever they are in the world, what would you like to say to all the listeners? What would I say to all the listeners? Keep listening and and. Thank you. I would I would say thank you for listening. I think is is really, if I could, thank you so much for the feedback that I get from the listeners and and for and just for keeping music alive. It's a real important thing. So, God bless all the listeners. I think is what I'd say. Well, Mr. Snow, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you and doing this interview. Well, well, thank you, Paul. It's been it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I enjoyed the questions and then had a great time doing it too. All right. Well, have a great day. Okay. Thank you, Paul. You too. 
The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.